0: It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff show. Today we finally got the first estimate for US GDP growth in the first quarter of 2019, and typically the first quarter of the year has been rather weak. That has been the experience pretty much uh, going back through the uh, Barack Obama administration. And the consensus was for a 2.3% rise in um, first quarter GDP. That would have been just a slight improvement over the 2.2 number that we got for the fourth quarter of 2018. Although, if you remember, way back, I don't know, a couple months ago, everybody was really low. I mean, you had a lot of people that were looking for Q1 GDP to come out with a zero handle, uh, but they had been ratcheting up those expectations up now to a consensus of 2.3. A lot of it had to do with the fact that the trade deficits uh, had come in a lot smaller than people thought. And I think the reason for that is because the trade deficits really ramped up in the last couple of quarters, probably because businesses were trying to front run the tariffs that were supposed to come in at the end of last year. And so that might have caused extra imports to try to, you know, get things in under the gun before they were subjected to the tariffs. And so because we, you know, we 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 pulled all that forward Imports weren't as much in the first quarter. And so they did not subtract as much from the GDP. Also, the inventories continued to build, uh, but most importantly, because they weren't selling. I mean, goods weren't selling as much, uh, but uh, the inventories were building. That also ended up helping. And so we ended up getting a number that was much bigger than consensus. We actually got 3.2 percent. GDP growth for Q1 now before you get all excited aha Peter you know you were totally wrong on this you were looking for a weak number first of all a lot of people were looking for a weak number it wasn't just me but I do believe that we simply delayed the day of reckoning by a quarter I think this time it's going to be the second quarter that's going to be a big disaster I mean we may even get a negative number in Q2. And the reason for that is, number one, we're not going to get the positive contribution from smaller trade deficits. We're also not going to get the contribution from inventories. But I think the biggest hurdle or the biggest problem is going to be the deflator, the inflation number. Because the real reason that GDP was 3.2% was because the government's version of inflation, the GDP deflator, that's the number that they use to take a nominal number and make the real number. And they report the real number, right, not the nominal number. And in the fourth quarter of last year, according to the government, the annualized rate of inflation was 1.7%. So that's what they use to deflate the, uh, the, the nominal number. Well, in the first quarter of this year, according to the government, that number, the price deflator, was just 0.9. 0.9, that's the annualized rate of inflation. So the government says that in the first quarter of this year, the annualized rate of inflation was not even 1%. And as a result of that, the real number was much larger. Had the uh, deflator remained the same in Q1 of this year as it was in Q4 of last year, then the GDP would have been 2.4, which would have been pretty close to the consensus. Now, the question is why? Because, you know, when I first look at these numbers, it's like, come on, give me a break. I mean, oil prices exploded in the first quarter of 2019. In fact, they rose by 33%. In contrast, in the fourth quarter of last year, oil prices crashed by 38%. So, I mean, how do we have more inflation in the fourth quarter of last year when oil prices collapsed than we did in the first quarter of this year when oil prices surged. And then, in fact, if you actually look at the energy number that was used, the government claimed that energy prices dropped by 17% in the first quarter. Now, is this just a complete fabrication? Or maybe it's possible that what happened was that oil prices dropped dramatically In the fourth quarter of last year. But it didn't affect the prices that consumers paid until the first quarter. So in the first quarter, consumers got a lot of the benefit of the big drop in oil prices that occurred in the prior quarter. But that means that in Q2, consumers are now going to feel the pain of the increases in energy prices and oil prices that we saw in the first quarter of this year which means that the deflator is going to be a much, much bigger number in Q2 than it was in Q1 because it's going to have to incorporate that huge increase in energy prices. And so that means that it's going to be a bigger subtraction from whatever the nominal GDP number is. So when you take that into effect and take it into effect that we're not gonna have the contributions from inventories, we're not gonna have the contributions from trade, we could be looking at a very, very weak number in the second quarter. So instead of the first quarter being the real weak one, we end up with an extremely weak second quarter. So don't get too excited. I know Donald Trump was out there tweeting immediately how great this is, right? It is the best first quarter in four years. You have to go back to 2015 uh, to find a first quarter that was this good. Of course, Barack Obama was president then. So, you know, there was a Q1 uh, that was strong when he was president too, but it didn't persist throughout the entire year. And that's not going to be the case this year. You know, there is a lot of, bad news that is going to be weighing down the economy. You know, there was uh, news on new home sales that came out earlier in the week, and that was an unexpected pop. I mean, it was uh, a, a better number than people had been anticipated. Of course, the housing numbers have been very weak. So why was it that all of a sudden there was a big jump in new home sales? And of course the markets reacted to this. Oh, this is great. You see, the news isn't really that bad because, uh, new home sales are, you know, spiked until you actually look beneath the surface. When you do that, you'll see that the reason that there was a big increase in sales of new homes is because builders finally threw in the towel and slashed prices. I mean, you had a huge collapse in the price of of new homes. I think down over 10% year over year, and it's the lower prices that, cause the sales, which makes sense, right? It's supply and demand. I mean, you have more demand if you lower prices. But obviously, if home builders are slashing their prices in order to move their inventory, that is a very bad sign for the housing market. Number one, it means the home builders are not making as much money on their homes right they had to build them and now they had to cut the prices so that's not good for home building stocks or their profits but of course if home builders can't make a good profit selling a home well then they're going to stop building right so it's bad for the whole industry if you work in that sector well you may not have a job if home builders can't build a home and then sell it at a high enough price to make a profit. And of course, this may just be the beginning of the price cuts. I mean, prices could be cut a lot more. Now, of course, the existing home sales, they may not have as rapid a price cut uh, because people have to contend with mortgages. And then if you you try to sell the house for less than your mortgage, you maybe need permission of the bank to do a short sale. But the builders in general are just going to sell the houses for whatever they can get because they have to uh, move the merchandise. So no, I read this article, though, about a a home that sold in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is not too far uh, from where my house is in Connecticut, although I'm not in Greenwich. But this house apparently had been on the market for about three years. The guy who owns it had moved down to Florida, in part to get away from the high taxes of Connecticut. But, of course, that means that anybody buying his home would be Assuming that tax burden and there's not a lot of people that want to move into high tax states, especially when they have a lot of debt, which means their high taxes are going to get higher. So this guy had been trying to sell his house for a few years. I think he started at four or five million uh, and he's cut the price several times. And then he decided to auction it off right to the highest bidder. And it ended up selling at the reserve bid, which I think was one point eight million dollars. Now, that may sound like a lot of money to some people, but for a house in Greenwich, Connecticut, it's chicken feed. I mean, this thing collapsed in price. And, of course, the houses in Connecticut, and I know that I live there, I mean, houses are lower than they were, lower than they were probably um, 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of inflation in the last 20 years, but you could buy houses in, in, in Fairfield County, Connecticut, for less than they cost back then i mean in, you know obviously houses you know depreciate you think but they're probably well maintained in connecticut uh and so and and obviously too that the prices did go up and if you look at where the market was connecticut probably peaked out 2005 2006 so since then housing prices have more than halved you know and in some cases substantially more And so this is going to be happening, though. This is not just a phenomenon that's going to be happening in Connecticut. I mean, housing prices are going to be coming down all over the country. I mean, Connecticut has some particular problems. I mean, a lot of these high tax states right now, um, the taxes are no longer deductible on your federal income tax, the SALT taxes. So that uh, was a major tax increase and a reason to get the hell out of the state. But, you know. Uh, There's another reason now these morons in the Connecticut legislature, now they have a plan to raise taxes yet again, right? They're saying they need to raise taxes to help the poor, right? Well, you know what? If raising taxes helped the poor, there'd be no poor people left in Connecticut anymore because they keep raising taxes. They want to raise the sales tax. Yeah, how's that going to help the poor? Don't the poor pay the sales tax? Yeah, so the government's going to take their money and then give it back to them and claim they're helping them, right? But they also want to raise the capital gains tax on the rich. And they describe the rich as anybody who earns a half a million dollars a year if they're single or a million dollars a year if they're married. And what they want to do is add a surcharge of 2%. So right now, the capital gains tax is about 7%, I think 6.9. And so they're going to raise it to almost 9%. And that means they'll be taxing capital gains higher than they tax ordinary income, which very few states, I don't think maybe one other state might do that, but that's very rare. In fact, the federal government, it's the opposite, right? They tax capital gains at a lower rate than the rate on ordinary income. But Connecticut wants to tax it at a higher rate, which, of course, is going to chase even more high income families, particularly a lot of these hedge fund guys that still reside in Greenwich, right? Uh, They make most of their income on carrot interest in their funds, which is taxed at the capital gains rate. And so this is yet another reason to get out of Connecticut and put your home on the market. And it is fewer people who are going to be coming to Connecticut to buy the houses that everybody is trying to unload. Now, too, I forgot to mention, I talked about the big uh, uh, increase that we had in oil prices in the first quarter of this year. Well, we had a pretty decent drop in the price of oil today. Uh, crude oil prices dropped better than $2 a barrel. So we're back down to sixty-two eighty-eight. And the catalyst was Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump came out and announced. I don't know if he tweeted it or just there was a press release. But he said that he called up the Saudis because he doesn't like where the oil price is. He wants the oil price to come down. And apparently the Saudis are cooperating. And Donald Trump says, see, the prices are already starting to fall as a result of my phone call uh, to the Saudis. Now, I have no idea what Trump talked about. On this phone call i mean whether or not he's just saying this i mean donald trump tends to have i guess maybe and sometimes the same problem with the truth that the bartender has right that you don't necessarily always have to be factually accurate so who knows but uh he was able to talk the price of oil down but remember trump has been talking the price of oil down during the entire rally right he recognizes that rising oil prices take a bite out of consumer spending which takes a bite out of an economy that's based on consumer spending. So he is trying to do whatever he can to talk the price of oil down. But you know, that is inconsistent with uh, his other goal, right? He's also trying to talk interest rates down, right? He's bashing the fed for being too tight. He wants the fed to be more accommodative. He wants the fed to start cutting interest rates. He wants the fed to do QE4, right? Well, if you want the Fed to print more money, right, and and be easier, but you also want oil prices to go down, those two goals are mutually exclusive, because when the Fed starts printing more money, when the Fed you know lowers interest rates, oil prices are going to go ballistic, right, and and so Trump maybe doesn't realize that, but that's what's going to happen, and and I don't think Trump is going to get his wish when it comes to uh, lower oil prices, but I do think he's going to get his wish. When it comes to an easier Fed, the question is, when is the Fed uh, going to uh, start cutting? I mean, so far, the Fed has not had to do that because the dollar, right, the dollar hasn't really started to fall yet. We haven't really started to see a, a, a more pronounced deterioration ever since the Fed announced that it would no longer hike rates. But the reason that that's been able to work thus far is because a lot of other central banks are backing off from their tightening, right? Everybody is getting uh, dovish. It's a dove fest. Look what just happened in Canada. Look, about, look at uh, Sweden. I mean, they've still got negative interest rates in Sweden. And, you know, they were supposed to hike rates. So was Canada. And now everybody who was supposed to hike rates is saying, well, we're not going to hike them. Everybody is getting more easy on their monetary policy. And that is taking some of the pressure off of the dollar and the Fed. Because if everybody else is backing away from their contemplated tightening, well, then the Fed on a relative basis is not easier than it used to be. Except... As inflation really rears its head around the globe, which it is going to do, right? I mean, that's why we've been seeing oil prices rise, despite Trump's efforts to talk them down. And it's not going to be just oil prices. Lots of prices are going to be going up. A lot of these other central banks are going to be forced out of their easy money stance, they're going to have to hike interest rates. But America will not. America is going to resist that temptation, or not even a temptation. They're just not going to do it because we can't afford it because of the enormity of the debt that we have, and how higher interest rates uh, would impact this economy. That's why the Federal Reserve is already trying to lay the foundation for the markets and investors to accept higher inflation. In fact, to be rooting for higher inflation. In fact, you know, one of the reasons or the the way the markets originally reacted to the GDP numbers that came out, gold went up today. I mean, gold was up about 10 bucks. See, normally when the economic news is better than expected, you would expect gold to go down. The dollar fell today. The stronger than expected GDP and it was much stronger than expected, the dollar went down. It didn't go up. And bond yields went down, not up. Bonds were bought on stronger economic growth. Now, why is that? Well, the reason, I think, is because the markets were looking at the deflator and saying, wait a minute, there's less inflation. That means there's another reason, there's another excuse for the Federal Reserve not to have to hike interest rates because inflation is below their 2% number. And I think it was that low inflation number, even though it's clearly a transitory number, Uh, based on the way it's being calculated. But I think the markets jumped on that. uh, And they bought bonds. They sold a dollar. They bought gold. Uh, And the stock market, you know, again, had another positive day today. The the Dow was up uh, 81 points. Uh, NASDAQ up, you know, up again on the week. And despite some pretty uh, bad numbers that we got today, Intel got clobbered. Uh, It came out with some bad numbers. But not just Intel. We had 3M earlier in the week. Uh, 3M was actually down 12% on the week. Uh, Yesterday, UPS plunged. I think it ended up down 9% on the week. But these are kind of bellwether type stocks, right? Industrial stocks, transportation stocks, tech stocks that all had very, very weak earnings uh, and the stocks got clobbered. But, you know, the markets continue to ignore that and continue to grind higher uh, despite that because there is all of this speculative fever. In fact, uh, some of the recent IPOs like Pinterest uh, continue to make new highs. One that actually made new lows today was Lyft, right? It sank to a new low earlier today since it's been public, but it did manage a bit of a reversal to close up a little over 1%. The catalyst there, I think, for the new low, I don't know know that this stock needs a catalyst to go lower. It's just going lower on its own. But there was some news on the Uber IPO. They have now reduced – the valuation again. Now they're looking to take Uber public with an $84 billion valuation. Now, they were initially looking at like $110, $120 billion, and they keep lowering the bar, and now they're down to $84 billion. Something tells me the bar still isn't low enough because the big problem with with Uber is the the Uber size right, of their losses. I mean, you're talking about Uber losses over there at Uber. But, you know, another stock that's having Uber losses that is really starting to sink now is Tesla. You know, Tesla was down another 5% today. A new 52-week low, $235. You remember, this stock had an all-time high of $387. And now we're down to $235. But if you look at a chart. Right, we are potentially at a very critical level, and again, this is a big speculative story in this stock. And this stock has been held up by the cheap money that fuels the speculative fervor and has enabled this company to go up. But you know, a, a stock like this breaking uh, is you know a potential canary in in a coal mine, and we've got lots of canaries in this coal mine that people have been ignoring as they drop dead. One after another, you know, I just put up on my YouTube channel about three weeks ago uh, on a day that uh, Tesla had a big drop. I think it was down about 10 percent on some other bad news, but the stock was well above where it is now. I think it was like in the two sixties, So about thirty dollars higher. And I actually went on RT. They invited me on to talk about Tesla, you know, because I don't really get invited on the mainstream to talk about anything, but. RT had me on to talk about Tesla and their earnings. And I I was very bearish. I said, look, you know, Tesla's got a lot of problems and, you know, people should sell. I mean, the smart money is short. And so I remembered I did that interview and I never uh, put it up on my YouTube channel. But Tesla hit a new 52-week low today and it was being talked about. I posted it so you can listen to uh, my comments on Tesla. You know, by the way, I I actually just met Elon Musk's mother, uh, May Musk. Uh, She was down here in Dorado, uh, just on on vacation uh, with a group of people, and I had a chance to chat with her for a while. Very nice lady, very very attractive. She was a former model, and she aged aged quite well. Very fashionable, stylish uh, woman. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that out there. But I've never met uh, Musk himself, but 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 now I've met uh, Mrs. Musk. I mentioned that gold was up today. It ended up closing up about nine dollars. We're back above twelve eighty five. Still below thirteen hundred. You know. Gold was in the process of forming a head and shoulders top that might have projected gold down to around 1,210, 1,220, something like that. In fact, I I learned about that head and shoulders from following my son, Spencer, on Twitter. He had put out the chart uh, about the potential head and shoulders, and we did actually get below the neckline. Uh, But, you know, if we get back above that neckline, if this head and shoulders pattern does not play out, if it's a busted head and shoulders, that is extremely bullish because head and shoulders tops, you know, or bottoms, they're generally pretty reliable. So most of the time you get a head and shoulders top, the market, you know, the, the pattern uh, you know plays out and you get the bigger drop. Now, the interesting thing that even you know my son pointed out is that if we get the big drop, we're just gonna take gold back down to the uptrend line. So it's still in a positive long-term pattern, even if in the short run it might have pulled back. Uh, to satisfy the the head and shoulders pattern. But obviously, head and shoulders patterns don't always work. I mean, if they always work, then you can make money every time, right? Just find a head and shoulders top and you're guaranteed to make money. Or find a head and shoulders bottom and buy it and you're guaranteed to make money. Uh, You're not. I mean, most of the time they work out, but not all the time. And what is probably even more reliable than the head and shoulders pattern is when it doesn't work. When it breaks the neckline but then doesn't fulfill the pattern and goes back the other way, in the case of a top, it could portend a huge rally. So potentially that is what's coming in gold. But I think we still need to move a little bit higher before we uh, you know, bust that, that potential pattern. Although while real gold was moving up today, digital fools gold was moving in the other direction. You know, Bitcoin had a big drop uh, yesterday, overnight, today. We had gotten as high as, I think, about 5600 on the price of Bitcoin, maybe a little higher. And then we tanked yesterday. The catalyst was a news story that the attorney general in New York had basically filed charges or a lawsuit against Bitfinex, Tether, having to do with fraud. And I've talked about this on this podcast before. There's a lot of smoke that's been out there on Tether and Bitfinex. And normally, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And what I think is being alleged in this lawsuit is that, you know, there was an $800 million loss at Bitfinex that was covered up by basically embezzling money out of Tether because Tether is the, a cryptocurrency that is tied to the dollar. So it's a stable coin, one for one with the dollar. And so it's backed by all the dollars that are held in reserve. But what the lawsuit is alleging is that they illegally took money out of that reserve to cover up their losses, which meant that there weren't dollars backing up the tethers. And so if the people that owned the tether had cashed them in, right, there wouldn't have been any dollars there to cash them out. And this has been... You know, allegations about a lot of the the, the big run-up in the price of crypto back in 2017 was in part fueled by money maybe embezzled from Tether. And maybe that the Tethers that were used to buy cryptocurrencies were just issued without any dollars actually backing them up. So in other words, the demand that fueled the rally wasn't even legitimate because there was no real money uh, because they were just counterfeiting tethers. So here, more news shining a light, which was a reason to sell this rally. And if you look at the long-term crypto chart, we're still in a bear market. I mean, this rally, I mean, yes, we were down near 3,000 and we rallied above 5,000 but we're not even nearly back above what used to be support. I mean, it used to be a lot of support, was at 5,500, 6,000? Remember, that's where everybody said that you know that's the main support. Well, we crashed through that. And when you talk about technical analysis, what used to be support, if it gives way, becomes resistance. And all we've really been able to do with Bitcoin, all we've really been able to do with, with Bitcoin is rally back to what is now the the resistance level? And now we've had a pretty big turn back down. In fact, I think we did move a little bit above uh, a moving average, and now we're back below it. So the technicals are not looking good. Of course, a day or two ago, I saw Tommy Lee, you know, the perennial Bitcoin bull on CNBC. Bitcoin is above 5500 and he's like the bottom is in we're going way up he was so excited about all the technicals and about how we were above this moving average that we're now below I think it was the 200 day that he was referring to but he was getting really bullish again on on crypto really at the top of what really is a, a bear market rally and I think that bear market rally you know has likely peaked out we'll see you know right around 5000. Uh, is where the low was. I think we 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 touched below it briefly. As I'm recording this, we're now back around 5,100, but still down about 10 percent uh, from the highs that we were trading at yesterday. About this time, want to talk a little bit of politics now because I think it was just yesterday, Joe Biden, you know, has now uh, entered the fray. He has officially uh, thrown his hat in the ring, and he is now a candidate. Uh, for president he's running of course uh, in a crowded field of other Democrats now of course for a while there was uh, you know some problems there were some women that were coming out and saying that you know Uncle Joe was getting a little too frisky. You know, he liked to smell their hair. I don't know. It seemed like uh, they were trying to keep uh, Joe from entering uh, the primary because obviously he's the old guard. He's the establishment. He's an old white guy, right? He's not with it now. He's not progressive. He's not a socialist. I mean, maybe he is, but he's not, you know, he's still in the closet. He's not embracing socialism. You know, he was the vice president under Barack Obama, right? Now, I don't know why, you know, people want to distance themselves from Obama like he's the old guard. I mean, first of all, I mean, he was black, right? I mean, so uh, that's supposedly, you know, represented progress. Uh, And, you know, Biden, of course, is not being endorsed. Obama is not endorsing uh, Joe Biden. Now, normally, you know, a president would endorse his VP. I mean, that's part of the deal, right? I mean, you go along Uh, With your president, you play ball, you do what he wants. You know, you're a cheerleader for him. And the quid pro quo is, you know, when it's your turn to run, you get the endorsement. And uh, Obama's not even endorsing it. Because I guess Obama, you know, doesn't want to piss off the more liberal wing of the party, right? So he doesn't want to come out and endorse Biden, especially since Biden may not win. And so, you know, he doesn't want to come out and back the loser. But, you know, I guess one of the first lies of the Joe Biden campaign? Because of course, you know, there's going to be a lot more, right? That's all politicians do, right? How do you know when a politician is lying? His lips are moving, right? Well, the first lie that Joe Biden has told is that he said that the reason Barack Obama is not endorsing him is because he asked the president not to endorse him. Now, I don't believe that for a minute. There is no way that, Uh, Joe Biden had a conversation with Barack Obama and Obama said, hey, Joe, I'm going to endorse you. And then Joe Biden said, no, no, Barack, that wouldn't be fair to the other candidates. Why don't you stay out of it and just let the voters decide? There is no way that that conversation took place. Basically, Biden has to come up with a lie to explain why Obama is not endorsing him. So that's that's a plausible lie. I told him not to. Now, maybe he actually did tell him not to because he knew that there was no way he was going to get the endorsement. Maybe, you know, uh, Barack Obama kicked him under the table and said, hey, this is what you got to tell me, right? So you have some kind of uh, excuse as to why I'm not endorsing you. But anyway, that's his first lie, and it's the first of many. But again, I don't want to pick on Biden. He's not the only uh, politician who's going to be lying. Again, they're all going to be lying. But this is going to be a real shit show, uh, this uh, Democratic primary, because everybody's got to go to everybody's left. Right. It's like how far to the left you can go. It's like a gigantic socialist limbo. Only you're moving left instead of moving down. The problem is you go so far to the left, you've lost the center. Right. And again, if we are not in a recession in 2020 in November and they've nominated someone on the far left, then obviously Trump could have a second term. If we are in recession, I don't care who they nominate. That person's going to win. Right. That's why uh, this is so scary. Right. I know there are people that are, you know, say, you know, Peter, why is it that you, you know, you want the U.S. economy to collapse? Right. You you know, you talk like you want it to collapse. I do because it's a bubble. I want the bubble to pop. That's what people don't understand. I mean, the longer this goes on, the worse it is. We are just digging ourselves into a gigantic hole. Why would I want to dig it deeper? I mean, that's what politicians want to do because they They don't want to deal with the problem. They want to kick the can down the road. I want to deal with the problem right now. I mean, I wanted to deal with it five years ago. I wanted to deal with it 10 years ago because it's good for America to stop digging the hole. Let's stop taking on debt. Let's stop growing government. Let's repair the damage, right? I mean, if you are an alcoholic, stop drinking. Don't just drink more. Check yourself into rehab. That's what I want to do. So the sooner we can prick this bubble, the better. But, of course, the danger now, right, and this is a real danger, which I get, is the bubble pops while the Republicans are in charge. They get the blame. Capitalism gets the blame, right or wrong, because Trump is now the face of capitalism. Even though he's not necessarily a real capitalist, he's the face of capitalism. He's also the face of shrinking government, even though he's made government bigger. He talks about deregulation, you know. but what if we deregulate it? Deficits are bigger. Government is spending more. I mean, what's conservative about that? What's in theory Republican about that? But that's what is going to get blamed for this. But you know what? Doesn't matter because even if we don't crash before the election, we're going to crash after Trump is going to be at the helm of the Titanic when it hits the iceberg. Right. There's no way we're going to avoid recession for another six years. I mean, I I still don't think we're going to avoid it for another two years, but there's no way we're going to avoid it for six. And the next one is going to be the last one. The next one is going to be horrific because when the Fed tries to come to the rescue with more QE and 0% interest rates, nobody is going to believe that it's it's a temporary policy. Nobody is going to believe they have an exit strategy. Right? If they couldn't shrink a $4.5 trillion balance sheet, they'll never shrink a $10 trillion balance sheet. If they couldn't normalize interest rates after keeping them at zero for eight years and with a $22 trillion national debt, they're not going to normalize interest rates with a $30 or $40 trillion national debt. I mean, imagine all the extra debt corporations are going to take on from where they already have. If we're going to keep this bubble going, imagine how much more student debt we're going to have, how much more auto debt, how much more credit card debt, how much deeper into debt are the states going to get? Are the municipalities going to get? So no one is going to believe for a second that we're ever going to normalize rates that we're ever going to shrink the balance sheet. It was that false belief that was providing support for the dollar. So the next recession is cataclysmic. So whatever it happens, Uh, it's going to be a disaster for the Republicans. So we might as well get it out of the way. And personally, I think it's better to get the socialists in office in 2020 where we have a shot to get rid of them in 2024 than let them come in in 2024 because I think by then things are going to be so bad we may never Get rid of them. But you know, one point I wanted to make though about the election, about how ridiculous it's going to be, is the left forces people right to sign on to these crazy ideas, right? Like like the Green New Deal. But one of them, an old idea that has been resurrected. I don't even know if I've commented it on my podcast. I can't remember. You know, I've I've been doing a lot of podcasts over the years, so I forget. And oh, and by the way, I mentioned earlier that I just put up on my YouTube channel my uh, my interview on RT from three weeks ago about Tesla. But a couple days ago, I posted the uh, keynote speech I did at the New Orleans conference in uh, November of 2018. So it's about a half hour speech that's up there. And I also put up a panel that I did. It was me and two other guys. And it was the the bubble panel, boom, bust bubble panel. So I put that up there. So you've got those two uh, new uh, talks that you can watch on my YouTube channel. If you want to hear me live, I'm going to be at the Money Show in Las Vegas. I think that's uh, the 10th through the 14th. Uh, So if you're in Vegas, you can see that. That's a free conference. I'm also going to be at at a conference where you have to pay to attend the SALT conference, which stands for SkyBridge alternative asset that one is also in vegas it's a few days earlier it's the 7th through the 10th so i'm going to be there at salt i'm just going to be doing a debate gold versus bitcoin i'm going to be actually doing a lot more at the money show and of course i'm going to have a booth there we're going to have some of my reps from my la office there so you should uh you should stop by but getting back to what i was discussing so this one topic uh that is now getting more news uh, among the Democratic candidates is the idea about reparations for slavery. Now, if there was ever a completely nutty, crazy idea, slavery reparations is it. I mean, is it is probably, of all the dumb things that Democrats have come up with, this has got to be the dumbest. But all of a sudden, it's being resurrected. And a lot of these candidates are afraid to be against it. I mean, some of them are, right? Bernie Sanders was against it. A Biden, I guess, would be. I don't know. But you got a lot of people that are actually believe believe that there should be reparations for descendants of slaves, that people who descended from slaves should receive some kind of a payment. And they try to claim that, well, you know, uh, the Germans paid reparations for the Holocaust. They did to the actual survivors of the Holocaust not their great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Germany paid reparations, and the, the taxpayers who paid it were the Germans who were responsible for the Holocaust, right? I mean, the people who were living in Germany at the time that the Holocaust survivors got reparations, they were in Germany when they were in concentration camps. But here you have this crazy concept that the sins of the fathers in fact, not the fathers, the great, 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 great grandfather should be visited on the sons. This is complete nonsense. But I mean, I might as well just you know beat this horse until it's dead, and just talk about how utterly preposterous the notion of slavery reparations uh, actually is. I mean, first of all, America has paid the price for slavery, right? I mean, we fought a war, right? over the expansion of slavery or slavery. I really want to say the, what the catalyst was for the Civil War. Clearly, you know, slavery was a big part of it. Freeing the slaves was a big part of it. It happened in 1863. How many Americans died to end slavery? I mean, we, more Americans died in the Civil War than any other war we ever fought. So there was a big sacrifice. Uh, to end slavery in America. Um, certainly the monetary cost. I mean, forget about the cost of, of, in lives, the cost of waging the war and then the cost of rebuilding the South. I mean, how much did that cost? I mean, so there already was a huge price paid to end slavery by the people who were alive at the time. And remember too, the people who owned slaves, I mean, the slaves were freed. There was no compensation to the slave owner, right? They, they, They bought the slaves and then they were freed, right? So there was a monetary loss that took place at the time, right, by the people who actually owned the slaves. But the idea that now, 150 years later, that there should be some compensation to people who weren't even alive, whose grandparents weren't even alive when slavery existed, is nonsense. I mean, because first of all, who gets it, right? Who gets the uh, reparation money? Right. Well, I mean, do you actually have to prove that your ancestors were slaves? I mean, because there are a lot of blacks that live in America whose ancestors didn't get here until after slavery ended. Right. A lot of blacks came, uh, you know, in 1870, 1880, 1890. There are blacks that came from other Caribbean islands. Right, their, their ancestors weren't slaves. At least they weren't slaves here. I mean, it's possible they were slaves someplace else, but they weren't slaves in America. But how do you know? And of course, a lot of blacks, I mean, they're not like every one of their ancestors wasn't black. I mean, you have a lot of blacks that are also part white, right? I mean, I mean, you know, there's a lot of white blood in a lot of African-Americans. I mean, that's just, I mean, I mentioned Barack Obama earlier. He's half white. I mean, people always talk about how he's the first black president, but he's half white. I mean, does Barack Obama get reparations? First of all, does he need reparations? But if he does, does he get them? Right? I mean, because he's half white. I mean, does his white half pay the reparations to his black half? I guess that would even out, right? But how do you know? And first of all, too, not every white person owns slaves. First of all, right, I think very few people up north had slaves. I mean, maybe about 20, 25%, I guess, of the southerners actually owned slaves. I mean, you had to be pretty rich to own a slave, right? I mean, the average white person down south did not have any slaves, So, I mean, why should white people who descended from white people who never owned slaves, why should they have to pay reparations? What did they do wrong? And first of all, what about me? I mean, I'm white, but none of my uh, ancestors were in America at the time of slavery. All four of my ancestors came to this country, uh, you know, around 1900. All my parents, grandparents immigrated from uh, Eastern Europe. So I mean, I wasn't my I, I, my roots don't trace. No, nobody in the Schiff family, at least in my line, owned any slaves. Why? Why should I pay reparations uh, for for slavery? And of course, lots of people can't trace their roots back down uh, to that time period. So the whole idea is is ridiculous because you don't know who's going to pay, and you don't know who's going to be the recipient. And look, there are a lot of uh, blacks in America today who are doing very well. I mean, why should they get reparations? I mean, you have some very, very successful blacks in the United States uh, making a tremendous amount of money. Uh, very successful. They, they need reparations. You got plenty of poor whites. Why should they have to pay reparations to blacks who are doing much better than they are? Right. I mentioned uh, Barack Obama. Uh, what, what about what about Patrick Mahomes? He's probably going to end up being the highest paid football player in the NFL when he signs his next contract. I mean, he's half white, too. Right. I mean, does he does he get reparations, you know, because he's half black right now? Of course, you got athletes who are, you know, all black like Le- LeBron James. I mean, th- does he need reparations? I mean, how much money does that guy have? Right. He needs to get repar. This whole thing is nonsense uh, that, um, that 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 there's somehow the ability to figure out which person is actually descended from slavery and then which person is descended from somebody who actually owned the slaves. Plus, another thing that people forget, too, is, of course, not all blacks were slaves even before they were freed in 1863. I mean, there were plenty of free blacks, I mean, particularly up north. And another thing that not everybody realizes is that there were some blacks that owned slaves. I mean, obviously, it was in the minority, but there were some slave-owner blacks. Now, so what if somebody is in America today, and they are an ancestor of somebody who was black and actually owned a slave? Why should that person— received reparations when his ancestors were themselves slave owners, right? And as I said, the vast majority of white people didn't own any slaves at all, right? So why should they pay? But you know what? There actually were some white slaves in America, right? You didn't have to be black to be a slave. I mean, the vast majority of slaves in America were black, but there were some white slaves. So what if there's a white guy here in America or a white gal who is the descendant of a white slave? Why should that guy pay reparations to potentially the descendants of a black slave owner? But even then, it doesn't make it right. I am not responsible for the sins of my great-great-great-grandfather, and and you are not bearing the suffering. This is the, the biggest irony of it all, right? And this is probably very politically incorrect of me to say this, but of course, I will always say things that are politically incorrect. There is no question... That the people who suffered the indignity of slavery, right, suffered. It was terrible to be a slave. I am not belittling uh, the institution of slavery or saying that, hey, the slaves had it good, right? I mean, slavery, I would not want to be a slave, right? So let's just, you know, I mean, maybe it wasn't as bad as some people think, right? It wasn't like, you know, most slave owners were like abusing the hell out of their slaves because after all, they were valuable property, right? They they had to maintain that property. They Slaves cost a lot of money. And so if your slave got sick, you took care of him, her, uh, you had to feed your slave, you had to rest your slave, you had to do various things, just like, you know, people did, people had horses that they, uh, you know, not that I'm equating humans with horses, but look, people just didn't beat their horses. So in general, people weren't beating their slaves. Uh, but I'm not saying that slavery, it was good to be a slave. I'm clearly, you know, it wasn't, right? So slaves suffered. No question about that. Slaves, slavery was bad and the people who were slaves suffered uh that but if you are the descendant of a slave that suffering the suffering of your ancestors benefited you benefited you Americans alive today who have descended from slaves are lucky that their great 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 grandfather was a slave in America why because if he wasn't a slave in America he probably would have been a slave in Africa or he would have been a free person in Africa. See, first of all, most of the slaves that made their way to the United States—it's not like you know these slaves were just running around free, and we sent people over to Africa to capture them, you know, running around the jungle, and we snatched them, you know, out, you know, from from their tribes. Most of the slaves that made it here in the slave trade were slaves already in Africa. They had black masters in Africa. And those black owners sold the slaves to the whites who brought them to the United States. In fact, they, they went all over the world, not just to the United States. Uh, and so if you descended from a slave in America, had your great, 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 great grandfather not come here then you would have descended from him in Africa, potentially. And so you you would have been born in Africa instead of being born in America. And even if your ancestor wasn't a slave and he was caught and, and, and enslaved by the Americans, so you would have been the descendant of a free African. But does anybody believe that it's better to be born black in sub-Saharan Africa, right, than in the United States? I mean, come on. I mean, I don't care what period of time, whether it's today, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, being born black in America is better than being born black in sub-Saharan Africa. Forget about, for a while, South Africa You know, was probably a pretty good, maybe a good place to be, maybe not. But in general, you had it pretty bad. Now, your standard of living is much higher, even if you are on welfare in America. Even if you're poor, that's probably better than your random shot at where you would be. Right. If you were born in Africa. Right. So if you took the typical African-American. Right. Who was here today and said, well, are you glad you were born here or would you rather have just randomly been born to parents in sub-Saharan Africa? Right. Just randomly. Right. I mean, so it's possible. Like I'm not saying that every African black African is poor. But in general, poverty is far more widespread, especially if you actually look at it objectively, not on a relative basis. I mean, how are people living in sub-Saharan Africa? I mean, pretty damn bad, right? So people who are here, they have it lucky. I mean, they don't need to be paid reparations. The fact that they're in America, that's all they need. I mean, think about what most people's ancestors had to do to get here, right? I mean, you know, they they had to come here. You know, my my grandparents, you know, had to come here in 1900. They had to, you know, cross the Atlantic. The descendants of slaves were already here. Now, yes, the slaves themselves, you know, they came in chains, that's bad. But their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, they didn't have to do that. They were already here. Thanks to that suffering, they were here. They got to be born in America, which at the time was the freest country in the world. It was a privilege. It was an honor, a benefit to have been born here so you can thank your grandparents for being slaves and enduring that so that you could benefit from the freedoms and the opportunities in America. Now, the fact that black Americans, maybe as a group, haven't benefited from those opportunities as much as other groups have, that that doesn't mean that they're owed reparations. In fact, if anything, what... A lot of the African-Americans have to do is do some soul searching and realize that the reason that they're having such difficulty is not because their ancestors were slaves, but because they've been dumb enough to vote for liberal politicians who have enslaved them with the welfare state. That is what's chaining uh, African-Americans today is welfare. It's food stamps. It's aid to families with dependent children. It's all these laws that have been passed supposedly to help Uh, minorities help black people. That is their biggest hindrance. All of these laws against discrimination, these anti-discrimination laws that actually create reasons to discriminate where there would be no reason absent these laws. So it's the Democratic Party itself. It's the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. That is the problem. Trying to say that we need money More money. I mean, what was the Great Society? What was the war on poverty? What was the New Deal? We keep throwing more and more money at the problem, and the problem keeps getting bigger and bigger. And now the reparations is just the icing on the cake of stupidity. But this, again, is where we are in the Democratic Party. They give me something for nothing because this is really something for nothing. This is a reason, hey, I'm black, therefore I'm going to vote Democrat because I'm going to get something because I'm black. Right. Just I'm going to get, you know, because the average black voter probably thinks that, yeah, reparations means I get something. Right. I get money given to me. Right. So you're trying to buy the votes, the African-American vote. You're trying to buy it with reparations because it's being paid by white people. Right. I guess. But what could be more racist than that? Right. I mean, you got a party trying to say, hey, we got to get rid of racism. Everybody has to be colorblind. Yet you're actually advocating taxing people because of the color of their skin and giving the money to other people because of their color of their skin. I mean, what could be a more racist concept than reparations for slavery? Because as I said, the slaves are long dead and their ancestors have benefited from the fact that they were brought here in chains and suffered and they got to be born here in freedom. So it's got nothing to do with slavery. It's got nothing to do with suffering. It's just about taking money from people who happen to be white and giving it to people who happen to be black, or maybe more black than white, to the extent that they they've got some kind of mixed uh, mixed blood, <laughs> but that is pure unadulterated racism. But instead of being rejected, right, by these so-called progressives. Right? It, it is being embraced, so we'll see. This is going to be one of the litmus tests in the Democratic primary right? of you know how dumb can you go, right? how far left can you go as to whether or not you're willing uh, to sign on to this or criticize it. And I don't think anybody, I don't think any Democrat is going to go out on a limb and actually talk about how stupid this whole concept is because they're afraid to alienate, Uh, The black vote, because the black vote is going to be much more important in the primary than it is in the general election, because, you know, in the general election, I mean, the Republicans pretty much know they're barely going to get any of the black vote. I mean, it's they're going to vote in block and they're going to vote Democrat, just like, you know, I mean, the Jewish vote, by and large, goes Democrat. Although I think uh, this next election, I mean, the Republicans might get a lot more of the Jewish vote than they typically get. I mean, they're not going to win the Jewish vote, but they may not lose it. Uh, as overwhelmingly as they traditionally do. And, and we'll see if that happens with the black vote. But by and large, the Democrats know they own that. I mean, and, 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 and so that's how come they can keep taking advantage of blacks because you know, they, they, they take their vote for granted. But in the primary, it's up for grabs, right? So in the primary, people have to find that vote and, and, and they're afraid uh, to stand up against, uh, against uh, the ridiculous uh, concept of, of slavery reparations. Thank you.